I don't know where you live, but I live in New York City. You know, the place where they make the best salsa. Every day, just about, I ride the subway. And every day, just about, someone bumps into me. Hard. If I were a woman, there'd probably be gropes to worry about. Sometimes you're squeezed into another person by someone else, but you get the stink eye. There are religious zealots, homeless buskers, businessmen and women, track workers, cops, rancid poets, hockey players. Entire school classes will get on and pack the cars. 35 kids refuse to use their indoor voices and will not shut up about how hot Jeremy is. If you live here, every permutation of life will be on the train car with you at one point. It can be great. But if you're in the wrong mood, it can bring you right to the edge. I can't tell you how many times I've wanted to yell at, punch, or defenestrate the dude who plays Candy Crush at full volume, no headphones on at 7 a.m. Or the two ladies holding Bibles who sit down next to you in an empty car to pointedly sing about Jesus. Or the two teenagers eating an open container of chicken birani from Trini Pack Boys. I'm hungry, and how are you smart enough at 15 to know to go to those guys? They're the best! I was in my 30s before I knew about them. Damn you, lucky youth! But I don't yell or punch or open the window and prep for step two, because I remember this, that on innumerable times, I've been that guy to all of them. The guy who stares you down because he's convinced you're looking at him, but really you were just letting your mind wander and now this creep is lasering you with hate eyes. The guy who hasn't showered that day or the day before. The guy who is for some reason in a good mood and thinks he's so funny doing an impression of David Strathairn really loudly to the annoyance of every single person. I think about one of those times and what I was going through, and of course, it makes perfect sense. I'm me. Then, one day I realized, oh, they're them. They have their own perfectly reasonable explanation for what they're doing. I just don't know it yet. Point is, you don't know what's going on behind other people's eyes. So just assume they're doing their best. Or worst. I'm David Strathairn, and this is Stupid Human Suits. Welcome to Stupid Human Suits. The only person who does a David Strathairn impression. There's not a person alive who doesn't love your David Strathairn impression. Or... Who doesn't find it absolutely essential to yeah. our minds. Let me read the headlines to you as David Strathair, and I'll do it. Donald Trump wants no. to get... Okay. okay. That was great, though. Thank you. Um, uh, guys, welcome to Stupid Give Human Suits. Uh, our guest this week is Dave Bledsoe. He's a good friend of ours. He's also a photographer and podcaster. He hosts oh. the podcast, What the Hell Were You Thinking? He is also a former Air Force police officer. Do I have that correct? You are. You do. And perhaps most importantly of all... He is a fellow Southerner. Once again, once again, Sean, you are outnumbered. Uh, You can follow him at the hell underscore podcast on Twitter and download the podcast on iTunes. Welcome, Welcome, Dave. Dave. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, how you doing? I'm good. How's your mama? Oh, she's great. How's your mama? She's great. Oh, fantastic. I went to Dunkin' Donuts and then punched a guy because I'm from Boston. No one cares. Because I'll catch a game at Fenway. <laughs> I'm How so about them pats, Sean? They're, they're really good. I have a cold, by the way, so I'm going to be really low energy, everybody. I'm so I apologize. I, just use it. Use it. Add add a little bit to your performance. Because <sighs> people love Flimmy on their podcast. They do. They do. Um, so, we Dave, start off uh, the, yeah, I, um, you've heard the podcast before, so I, I'd yes. love uh, this is just a, a delightful icebreaker for everybody. My first time. 
Dave, do you remember when you first realized what death was? Um, my great-grandmother died when I was seven. And I remember people were sad about it, but at the time it really didn't mean anything to And this me. is great-grandmother. So yeah, my like, great-grandmother. How yeah. old do you think she was, like 90s, 80s? Uh, she was probably pushing 90, late 80s, yeah. early 90s. The, the, both, in fact, I still have a living grandmother now who's like 91. Oh, oh wow. So, yeah, they all lived until... I was into adulthood. But I remember she died when I was seven and people talking about funerals and things like that, but it, it was meaningless to me. I, mm. I had no real concept of death mm -hmm. as a thing until well into my adulthood. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. No, um, that's, that's a, that's, you know, it's funny. There's, you ever see a movie where like, because death is such an incredibly difficult thing to process, even as an adult. And one thing that always takes me out of movies is like when especially in an action movie, like you'll see this more frequently, when somebody's like best friend on the force dies and they they feel it all at once. It's like, I'm in, you would be yeah. in shock. <laughs> yeah, you like don't feel anything when someone yeah. close to you dies. It I, takes days to process Yeah, that. that's your best friend. No, I've got it all and I'm coming for you. Mendoza! <laughs> I got a cold, so I'm going to be a little low energy today. <laughs> oh, wow, he really went through all those stages uh, of grief so fast. I know. He's I an mean, advanced one to five and under 30 <laughs> yeah. seconds. Who knows? The SWAT guys are really emotionally invested. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. You know, or love, love the war movies with the guys in combat that are grieving over their friend while the bullets are still flying. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah I'm, I'm no, sorry, Charlie. I'll cry for you after <laughs> yeah. the bullets start flying. I'm going to crawl down in this hole now. So, <laughs> um, Now, you also, uh, uh, like me, but it sounds like uh, even more so, grew up very religious. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, both my, my father and his father are evangelical preachers. Okay. Um, and from basically birth to 10 or 11 years old, church was not, you know, it was constant. You went on, you went on Sunday, you went on Sunday morning, Sunday night, you went to uh, Wednesday services, mm -hmm. and quite frequently there was Friday prayer meetings. That oh, I did all, not have the Friday. Yeah, you got to get oh. your game face on for Sunday. Uh. Yeah, exactly. I mean, yeah, you you go in and pray on Friday so that you can get fired up for for you know, I guess the football games oh, on Saturday, and then and then uh, go in on Sunday and get your <sighs> and get your God on. That's like a full part. That's nearly a full time job. Oh yeah, yeah. Especially and if you're the preachers, if you're in the preachers' family, it is a full time job yeah. because you can't you can't sit there and be a snotty little kid. You're the preacher's kid. Yeah. You've got to be a good kid. You got to sit there and to wear a suit and tie. That was the worst. Oh God, <laughs> and, a little kid in a suit and tie. Have, oh yeah, yeah. Sunday Sunday morning was suit and tie. Oh. Wear the same clothes Sunday night, but you know it's a little more relaxed. You can take the tie off. Oh. Yeah. Now, Cash. Was it a clip-on tie? Oh, yeah. There was no way I could tie a tie. <laughs> I still can't tie a tie, and I, they made me learn that in the military. So, no, I didn't like mm. no. Yeah, I didn't I didn't know how to tie a tie until I was in uh, my 30s. Baron Vaughn actually oh. taught me how to tie a tie. I'd been taught once that. before. Yeah, you remember he was we were doing a, a shoot the messenger wake up world with Liz Winstead and uh he was the co-host of the of this off-Broadway show we were doing and uh we were backstage just all getting in our costumes and he was like, "You don't you don't know how, you don't to, know how to tie a tie. tie." He was flabbergasted. <laughs> he could not believe I'd gotten that to that late stage of my life and but it's like if you don't have a, a dad figure or like not that he had one but or a male figure that does that for you like you kind of have to luck into that knowledge and I, I was like I didn't ask him who taught him but like he even a guy who also didn't have a dad in his life was flabbergasted. was like <laughs> how do you not know how to tie a tie well and I remember him asking he was like so you want like half Windsor Windsor and you're just like 
a tie. Yeah. <laughs> are, are, we, are we tying a boat to a dock here? Yeah. What's going on? Just Do you want a beer? Do you want to drink straight from my toilet? A beer. Oh, kids That's in what the hall. Yeah. Um, so now, did growing up super religious like that? Did that? Um, how did that affect your concept of death? Did you guys talk about it in church? And I mean, yeah, everybody. Church was you know, death was not a was not a bad thing mm-hmm. because you're going to heaven. To yeah. It's the Jesus. golden ticket. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've never. I, when I was a kid, that's how I understood it. Uh, and because it seemed to me, well, that must be pretty awesome because then you get to go to heaven and be with Jesus. So yeah, it was talked about, but it was never a bad thing. Mm. Yeah, it wasn't until I was older when when my when my dad's father died and I watched my dad go through the stages of his grief, not in the uh, accelerated format, but over yeah. months at a time, of course. <laughs> uh, that I was like it, that, and it's this was in my early twenties, twenty two, twenty three, and and also watching my grandfather die with him just raging against his death. Oh, wow. And I'm like... In your the back your of grandfather mind, raging against it? Yeah. Oh, what, yeah. And what did he die again? He, this was uh, 89, 90, yeah. and he was probably 72, 73 years well, and old. And what, what did you say he had? I'm sorry, was he just old age? It was uh, it was some form of cancer. I mean, he was yeah. a lifelong smoker, but it, oh, wasn't, yeah. it wasn't like lung cancer, but, you know, it's just one of the cancers you get when you're old. Yeah. You know those. Old cancer. And so, yeah. but to the very end, he's like struggling oh, to hang on. Bitter, and... bitter, oh. bitter. I mean, I've never seen... I, the man was not a happy man to begin with but i'd never seen such bitterness come out of him wow just and he lost his faith and really yeah i mean he would never put it that way but it was pretty clear that he was so angry that god was taking him and in my head i'm like wait a minute you're going to heaven you're going to heaven your entire life you've been saying fucking candy rock mountain exactly you've got golden streets and no jews this is all yeah. you've ever wanted because so. you know they'd take those streets if they were oh. up there you know what i'm talking oh, yeah, about of course. you guys know what i'm talking about <laughs> you, can, you can have golden oh, streets yeah. in heaven that's the, why they're not allowed the clouds there. wouldn't be up there they got that weather machine too <laughs> well so that's wow. fascinating though, look at that's you just the... steamroller over my anti-semitism no i'm yes ending him not you oh. um uh good point yeah, and uh, but that's the opposite of what you normally hear is like, you know, the whole there's no atheist in a foxhole thing, like the assumption that everyone as they get closer to death leans on the comfort yeah. of God, and it was the opposite for him. That's what I would have expected. I yeah. mean, I, I when my other grandfather died, he... I mean, he's a man of profound faith, but he's very quiet about it. He, mm-hmm. You know, he went to church every Sunday, but it wasn't something that, you know, he was in your face about. And he died with dignity and grace and, and peace huh. when he left. But my, you know, flamboyant praise Jesus and get down on your knees, <laughs> yeah. grandfather, was raging. Wow. I mean, you know, Dylan Thomas full on raging against the dying of the light. You yeah. Know? <sighs> Interstellar. Interstellar invented Dylan Thomas. I I think you're referring to the poet Michael Caine. But anyways... uh, let me ask you, because off of uh, my uh, my hyperbolic fake anti-Semitism, <laughs> my dad was my born again Christian, hard hardcore, but uh, was very some had that weird thing about him that he was like fine with the people of other faiths. Like he was, he loved Jews, he loved Muslims. Uh, mm-hmm. he, I mean, he thought they were wrong, but he was there was no antagonism, zero. Uh, how were you? How was your dad? How was your family about that? Because they yeah. were also evangelical. It's. To, the best that I could say is that because there were no other people of faith, there were certainly no Jews in Etowah, Tennessee, um, and there were very few Catholics. Yeah. Um, so maybe there was a squabble with the Methodists and the Presbyterians. But I don't, you know, I <laughs> don't think it, it came up that often. Interesting. Yeah. Um, yet at the same time, I can. My father was is more relaxed with it. My mother's uh, problems are a little. Or deeper. a little deeper. Yeah. Uh, I remember when I got into Georgetown, it was a congratulations, you got into a great university. 
isn't that a Catholic school? Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And I'm like, yeah, Jesuits. So, you know, are, the, are you going to have to like, I don't think she used the word macro snappers, but I believe oh that that God. was somewhere <laughs> in the... Uh, the Jesuits. The, yeah, I know. They're the it's Protestants the, of Catholicism. Exactly. It's fine. Well, I remember as a kid, because uh, I'm from Alabama, and um, the church I went to was the yeah. Church of Christ, and that was a divisive bunch of people. Like, Baptist, Methodist, you are not going to heaven. Our church, mm. Church of Christ, we are the only people going to heaven, because we're the only ones who have it exactly, oh, precisely yeah. that, That's what my dad's yeah. churches were always like. Whatever yeah. group of people he was with, they were the only only ones that were going to heaven like and that's why he kept searching for different churches oh interesting he wanted to find the ones that were going to heaven but yeah we like Catholicism Judaism I just thought those were cults I had no idea what those (laughs) things were yeah it wasn't until my dad joined joined the military when I was 11 that we started meeting people uh, you know any in any numbers of other faiths and other religions and um, that went into a long period of when we weren't as actively religious. Mm-hmm. Um, my dad was very, he was, he bought into the religion of being in the military. It, it filled that God shaped hole in his heart. Right. Well, um, speaking of the military, why don't we actually swing, swing tax? Cause the reason why you're here is because uh, you've been a cop. You were, uh, you've, you were a military cop. I mean, you've got this whole body of experience that is, uh, you know, all the more relevant. Yeah. Uh, uh, tell right us now. how you ended up going into the military. First of all. Um, so, we move being in the military being a military brat you move you move a lot i mean uh i moved well even before that my family we were just gypsies so i probably attended maybe eight or ten different schools between first grade and 12th uh, and from the start of junior high i was uh in oklahoma for junior high school went to guam for my first two years of high school and then moved from Guam to a small town in southwest, southeastern Idaho called Mountain Home for my last two years. So I didn't really have much of a plan for my future. Um, and in Mountain Home, Idaho, there were, you know, you could be a, a taco server at Taco John's or you could uh, go out in the potato fields and pick, pick potatoes or you could join the military. And that's that's what I ended up on. College wasn't never an option. It was never on the table. It was never discussed. And when I started getting old enough to think about it, uh, my mother in particular, she's like, why would you waste your money on college? I was like, I don't know. So maybe I could have a job or something. Um, so I did what most young men, young uh, men in that situation do. I went down to the recruiter's office, lied about ever smoking pot and joined the military. So. <laughs> and how old were you? You were 18? I was 17 when I joined. I joined on what's called the delayed enlistment program. Yeah. So they, they grab you while you're still in college uh-huh. uh, or still in high school. And uh, they, they feed you a line of crap and tell you all sorts of stuff and they get you to sign up. And then right after you uh, graduate, then you go to basic training. Gotcha. And then how does uh, so how does the being in the military transition into you being a military cop? So I graduated basic. Well, when I went in the military, I was originally supposed to be what's called a combat photographer. Uh, <laughs> this rafter man. From, that sounds uh, like an amazing job. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, I was I was really into photography in high school. I worked on the yearbook and, and, the, and the school paper and all that sort of stuff. So when I went to the recruiter, he's like, yeah, you know, we've got this great job. It's called combat photographer. But don't worry, you're never in combat because you're in, you're in the Air Force. So, you know, you'll be you'll work for the base paper and you'll take headshots. Of you'll be in the like, sky. It's fine. Yeah, exactly. You're fine. Um, so I was like, yeah, that's what I want to do. So they, uh, they halfway through basic training, uh, my sergeant came in to me and said, well, Bledsoe, we've, we've got some bad news for you. And basic training, bad news is always like, oh my God, you're going to take me out back and shoot me. <laughs> and he's like, yeah, you, we can't, uh, we can't give you this job. They've closed the school. So here, uh, here's a list. I want you to write down five other jobs and, uh, and we'll give you one of those. So I, obviously I was, I was an air force brat. I, I knew some of the stuff. And, uh, the last thing I put on there was to be a cop. 
because I'd saw the guys work in the gates of the bases and they got guns, they got dogs. They, and it's like, oh yeah, cool, I'll put that on there. <laughs> so naturally, that's that's the one they gave yeah. me. It was, it was utterly random. Uh, if you put cop on a list in the military, they're going to make you a cop. <laughs> wow. Wow, so that your fallback job was number one for them. Yeah. Oh, yeah, exactly. The other four, they just like, nope, 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 nope. Oh, yeah, here's it. We got we got one here. So were you, like, what do you do as a military cop? You just cruise around at night? What was your yeah, shift? It's, Morning? Uh, you know, if you've seen, a, if you've seen a, a street cop here in New York, that was, it's the same job. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. And, you know, they gave me a police car, they gave me a gun, um, and they gave me a radio, and you just answer radio calls and, and patrol. Is it so is it just on a military base? Yeah, That's where you, just okay. within the confines of the base. We don't have any, we didn't have any authority outside of the outside of the installation oh, what's yeah. what sort of was it just you or do you have a partner that you um were? i was a dog handler so i i worked with a police dog oh that's right for, yes, yeah, yeah, for yeah, the yeah. entire time uh but occasionally like you you know the the other guys who didn't if you had a dog you rode by yourself and yeah. most of the time even if you didn't have a dog you rode by yourself there just wasn't enough of did it. you have one dog the whole time no uh each each individual base i would have to leave the dog and oh, uh, leave no. the dog go the next yeah Jesus. um the, the the military it's it's different now now you'll pretty much stay with one dog but when i was in it was like it was like a truck or, or, or a generator. You know, oh, yeah. God. Time. Yeah. Um, it, it had its ups and downs. Um, I want to get to the serious stuff for a second, mm-hmm. but I have two more dog-related questions. Sure. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so uh, tell us a little bit about police dogs, because they seem alternately adorable, but fearsome. Vicious, yeah. So there are different kinds of police dogs. Mm-hmm. Um, they're uh, yeah, they're Shih Tzus and beagles, and uh, that would be an amazing. <laughs> no, they really are. They really are. There are drug drug and bomb sniffing dogs that are beagles. Beagles are awesome. For oh everybody. yeah, I bet. Um, so there, there at the time that I was in, there was three classifications. There was a patrol dog, which is strictly find people, chase people, bite people. Um, wow. And then there were p- patrol drug detector dogs and patrol bomb detector dogs. Um, and that's self-explanatory. Drug dogs sniff for dr- drugs, bomb dogs sniff, sniff for bombs, and I worked all three. So when I first, oh, I gotcha. yeah, so the first time I went in, they usually start you off on a patrol dog to see if you're any good, and then you go on for advanced training and then get to, uh, to work a bomb or a drug dog. Gotcha. And then, um, so every time I see a police dog, uh, my instinct is to go up and pet it. What would yeah. happen if I actually did that? Um, if you were just walked up and put your hand out, you'd get bit. Oh, okay. really? Yeah. They're, they're just ready um, to go. Most police dogs are not hyper aggressive. And if you walk up and you talk to the officer, he's probably, or she or she, excuse me, she will probably tell you not to let you, not to pet their dog mm-hmm. because the dog is there to protect, protect him. But if you have to imagine a six foot zone around any cop with a dog, that's oh. the extension of most leases. Just don't cross into that <laughs> because you don't you don't know you don't know how keyed that dog is. So, I gotcha. Yeah, so I ask. They're going to say no, but sometimes they'll say yes. Now you have a lot of uh, you know you have a lot of stories as your time as a cop, but one involving your police dog Gidget actually has a nice ending. Can you tell us? <laughs> yeah. Story? So uh, I got called out one night. Um, I was just doing a regular patrol uh, on the base, and uh, I got called out because these people who were taking care of a teenage girl while her mom was deployed overseas. Uh, hadn't she'd gone missing and they were they were worried about her so you know I showed up and started talking to her and the more they telling me the more they were telling me the more I was really concerned she's like she's been depressed her mom's she misses her mom mm. um, you know we think that she's got some problems and you know we haven't seen her since earlier this afternoon and usually that's like well come on it's only a few hours you know yeah. if this had been here in New York they'd have been like well call us at 24 48 yeah. hours but we're a small town so I just like well I'll go look for her yeah. and I got the rest of the guys out looking looking for her um, and I got to thinking, well, where would she go? 
and I ask where her her mother's house had been, and they gave me the address. So I go over there and I go to the house. It's still empty, and I'm searching all over, and I'm just kind of like just peeking through windows and trying to get in. And I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, I do have a dog with me that's that's taught <laughs> to go find people. So I got Gidget out of the car. Gidget was not actually her name. She had some like very Nordic Sonia, you know. And I'm, I'm, the I'm, Orb of Justice, exactly. Orb you know? of Justice. <laughs> so I, uh, but I called her Gidget because she was just a little little Belgian Malinois, like weighed about sixty pounds. She's like, duh, 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 duh. like, come on, Gidget, let's go. So I got Gidget out of the car, and I was like, well, and then I told her to start searching, and we're kind of going through, and all of a sudden she. Uh, she keys on this little cubby hole in the carport of the house. I mean, it's like maybe two feet square. And uh, she's just scratching at it, scratching at it, scratching at it. So I, I, you know, pull her back and I thump the door open and I see the girl. She's in there. She's curled up in the fetal position. And I'm like, oh, my God, what's going on? You know, and I I uh, put, put Gidget off to one side. I told her to stay because they're all taught to, you know, train your obedience command down, stay. I pull the girl out. She's breathing. And usually when you take your dog out and you search for somebody, the dog is because that's how we train them. Mm-hmm. They're they're trained to either chase or bite that person. So you know, all of our training was like you know, find them, go go look for them. They find them, and the guy jumps up and he's got the big burlap thing on his arm. And the dog yeah. gets a bite. And it's all fun for the dog. But Kitchen, <laughs> she's like, no, no, she just lay there and just did the little whiny thing as I'm you know like checking the girl's pulse and and do you know seeing if I needed to do CPR. Um, she was she was alive, she was breathing, but she was completely non-responsive. So mm-hmm. the got the hot got the EMTs there. They uh, they bagged her up and or boarded her up and took her to the hospital. <laughs> bagged her up. Bagged her up. Yeah. yeah. Oh, uh, small no, town that, EMT yeah, premises. That's how we. That's how we roll here. That's cool. Um, she had taken him to find out. She'd taken a bunch of sleeping pills and downed it with vodka. Um, but uh, and if we hadn't found her, the doctor said if we hadn't found her, you know, within the next half hour to an hour, it probably would have been too far for her to get back. So oh, Gidget. Yeah, Gidget. Hey. Gidget literally she took her out. It took her like two minutes to find her. Um, and it was it was a happy ever happy ever after story. And, yeah. and I did see the girl uh, not my, about six months later, and she was like, "Thank you, thank you so much." Uh-huh. Um, I I don't know what I was going. I was like, "You don't have to thank me. That's what I'm here for." She goes, "Yeah, but they told me that if it wasn't for you and your dog, that I probably wouldn't be here. Can, is there anything I can do?" I was like, "Well, you know." You don't have to. I'm just, but I said, if you want to give her something, you know, milk, you know, a big, you know, a, a rawhide boat or something like that. So a few days later, up down at the kennels, one of those big four foot long oh, rawhide oh, bones showed up. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, that so. must have been a good day. Do, for do her. you ever? I mean, do you, how 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 much longer did you have with Gidget before you had to move on? <sighs> I worked her for the last two years I was in. So I worked with Gidget for about two years, and then she mm-hmm. went to another handler. Gotcha. And this was how long ago? This was 95 to 97. So, so yeah, Gidget she is... So this was at the tail end yeah, of this your Yeah, this, this was my last duty station. Um, I want to back up for a second. Um to when you were just starting out and you're boop, 19. Boop, boop. <laughs> Come on, am I fun or it's, what? Yeah, you are fun. <laughs> you wouldn't fun. even know you have a cold. Um, so you're 19 years old. Mm-hmm. You're a new military not police right officer. She's, she's creating a, I'm, I'm cre- a scene. I'm setting a scene. Yeah, you're literally not 19 right now. I don't want you to think she has magic powers, if that was confusing for you. Some of I our guests am are a like... woman, and we all have magic powers. Um, but you're 19. You're cruising around in your car on a Sunday morning uh, in a town where not much happens. Yeah. What happened? Um, so Acre Air Force Base, Arkansas, which no longer exists, was Mayberry. It was like four or 5,000 people stationed there. And the biggest crime that we had was a drunk driver on Wednesday night. Um, so Sunday morning, I, I'm driving around, just got off from breakfast not too long ago because that's what you did on a Sunday morning. You got to work and you went to the chow hall and you had a big <laughs> breakfast. You sat there and drank coffee and, and uh, you know, shot the shit with people. And, and then you got out and drove around for eight hours. 
Um, about a half hour, 45 minutes after I'd got left breakfast, I'm cruising through the base housing area, and the radio comes over and it says, hey, we need you to go to this address and check on the guy. You know, his, his, his supervisor's worried about him. I'm like, okay, yeah, it's not, not an unusual call. Uh, so I pull up to the house and go knock on the door, no answer. And I'm like, okay, well, you know, let me go around the backside. So I go to the carport and I knock on the door and I can see somebody sitting at the kitchen table. But I knock on the door and they're like, there's no response. So I get on the radio. I'm like, hey, you know, there's somebody here, but he's not answering the door. Uh, You know, should I go in? They're like, yeah, just check the door. If it's open, just stick your head in. So I check the kitchen door. It's open. I open the door up and step inside and take about three steps in. And I realize that, uh, that the guy sitting at the kitchen table doesn't have a whole head um it's gone from the jaw up and he's he's sitting there he's got the shotgun double barrel shotgun still in his mouth his toe is still in the in the triggers and everything from basically the jaw up is gone and i look down and i realize that i'm i'm standing in what used to be his head (laughs) and i started freaking out I was like, holy crap, this is, no, this is not good, this is not good. And I knew I was going to throw up. But the most important thing that they had drilled into us was not how to cope with seeing a guy with half a head, because that might have been useful. Right. It was don't contaminate the crime scene. (laughs) Yeah. So I turned around, and I'm like, I'm going to throw up. I got to get back outside. I take one step and skid (laughs) in a big pile of brains and go down on my hands and knees in this guy's brains and blood and crawl out the door to throw up. And then I get back on the radio and was like, uh, I'm going to need some help over here because this is bad. Uh, they show up, the, the investigators show up. It, it's pretty clear that it's it's a suicide. <laughs> yeah. That's, yeah, I mean, you know, at, the, at the time, there was no, I was like, oh my God, yeah. this guy just got murdered by this somebody. This brilliant serial killer <laughs> keeps setting him up like this. Um, uh, yeah, so I was completely messed up by that. I had never seen, like we said, I mean, I, death and me were the most dramatic thing I'd ever seen prior to that was the movie The Omen where the guy's head gets chopped <laughs> yeah, off yeah, by the yeah. glass yeah. and it goes rolling down. Uh, yeah, I had no idea how to cope with that. And at the time, this was in 1988. Um, you know, machismo was still a big thing, and we yeah. didn't talk about stress, and you didn't go to see a therapist. There was no post-traumatic stress disorder for things like that. What you did was you got together with your friends after work, and you had what we call choir practice, which is, uh, you know, a bunch of guys drinking beer and singing songs and, and proving that you're a man by not being messed up by the fact that yeah. you just saw something incredibly uh, terrifying. Who's got one next? I got Kajagoogoo. <laughs> uh, yeah, Dave, always bring Kajagoogoo here. All right, Dave, go ahead. Yeah, uh, so... Uh, did like what haunted you the most was yeah. it like just this image um the idea of it was the there visceral, a smell like, a like smell, yeah. yeah you know what haunted me the most was slipping in the guy's brains yeah, yeah. Uh, i mean i i i'm wearing the uh, air force wears the blue uniform and usually i wore like the camos and things like mm-hmm. that but that day i just happened to be in a blue uniform um and uh i and standing there waiting with this guy all over my body uh, because I can't just leave to yeah. go take a shower and change a uniform uh, and for I, I burned that uniform I, I couldn't I couldn't wash it and yeah. every time that I would have like a flashback to it it wasn't walking in the door and seeing the guy 
it was slipping and falling and being looking down and at my hands and and all of this and yeah oh my god yeah that was that was a fun moment what have you uh, did you pursue anything to try to try to deal with that later once you got past the drink more. The, the just drink more, <laughs> drink more. Yeah. that helps that helps yeah, yeah. i would i would uh, i would engage in independent choir practice to uh, <laughs> to uh, you know shout at the sky exactly yeah. Oh my God! Yeah, right. Stepping on brains. That's isn't that Devos's uh, education plan? I oh yeah, I think yeah. so. I think that is. Yeah, that's doing. Just... <laughs> um, well, let's take a breather. Yeah, we we can cut out this awkward moment <laughs> while Sean and I regroup and <laughs> stop thinking about brains. Um, okay, so Top. now we're gonna flash back forward. Right. Yeah. So you um, shortly after uh, the the incident where you and Gidget found the young woman and and saved her. Um, you left the police force, and how long? So, how long has it been since you have been in that kind of role? Um, I left it in two thousand five, and uh, I because after I got out, I took the world's worst job, which was uh, I was a I was a store detective in a Walmart. Oh, oh, <laughs> uh, yeah, God, it, yeah. It, that oh. is the, that is the twelfth ring of hell, right? Yeah, there. that is that is the stepping in brains of jobs. <laughs> yeah, it literally was. It literally was. Oh, uh, God. And then uh, while I was doing that, I was desperately trying to get on another police department, yeah. and uh, I, I I wasn't. It wasn't working for me, mostly because I didn't like the other police departments. I didn't like the the, the, the environment, and I finally got a a, a, a job at a, as a campus cop at a uh, university in Washington, D.C. that's mm-hmm. known for uh, basketball and uh, educating politicians. Mm-hmm. Oh, uh-huh. very good. Yes. Um, you know, not naming names. You no. Know. No, no. Not Jesuit. No, I mean, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, so, definitely uh, not the school that you mentioned earlier. Definitely, podcast, definitely right? not. No, no. <laughs> um, so, yeah, that's how I went back into police work. And mm-hmm. I did that for another couple of three years before I just, I was so burnt out that I couldn't keep on doing what, it. What was the uh, the burning out factor? I mean, was it an easier gig on campus? Oh, was yeah, it was, it was a much easier gig. It was, uh, it was, I mean, my job on campus was not to really enforce the law. Uh, it was to keep college kids from killing themselves from mm-hmm. drinking. Yeah. Um, and that was pretty easy. And I was pretty, pretty mellow about it. I'm, and, uh. Uh, so I didn't even carry a gun uh, for either two universities I worked for. I had a nightstick. So. Were you allowed to carry a gun? No, no, none of, none of the departments were armed. Didn't need to be. I mean, it's Washington D.C. Yeah. We've got more guns there than you know. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so yeah, that job was was pretty cool, and they paid for me to go to school for free. So I would you know work I would work nights and take classes during the day, and then over you know the midnight shifts that I would work, I would study or go use the library and things mm-hmm. like that. So it was it was a great gig. And I remember you saying that you ended up leaving that job because you didn't know how to shut up yeah so (laughs) So what happened there you know there's been stories over the past couple of years about uh, about how universities deal with sexual assault Mm -hmm. uh, on campus those are not new stories they've been going on for years Um, and at this particular campus I uh, I knew a young woman who had been sexually assaulted I I knew that she'd been sexually assaulted I was the first person that responded I took the report she knew who had done it. It was a date rape scenario. Um, and I was like, all right, I'm going to, you know, do whatever I can to help you. And we took it up through the channels. Um, she didn't really want the Metropolitan Police to come down because she was like, I'd rather do it through the university because mm-hmm. I don't want my name drug all in the papers. I was like, okay, yeah. We, uh, then as I watched this work its way through the student justice system and watched the university actively try to cover this up. 
Mm. I sat there. The first thing that when I brought the report back in, the uh, the sergeant who was running the shift that night, he was like, so, so how are you going to classify this? I was like, I'm going to classify it as a sexual assault. He's like, no, no, you can't do that. Yikes. I was like, actually, I can because that's what it was. He's like, no, no, you're going to classify this as, uh, you know, as uh, as a how did what did we I can't remember the exact classification. Basically, it was uh Sub that it was sub that it was an wasn't assault, even an assault it, like... because it wasn't violent. So it was uh, inappropriate con- contact or something like that. Uh. Like it, like he grabbed her ass on the subway or something like yeah. that. So um, so he forced me to write it up like that. So I wrote two reports. I wrote what I was ordered to write, and then I also wrote what actually happened. Mm-hmm. And I submitted the official report to the department, and then I took my actual report to uh, the dean of students and gave it to her. Wow. Um, that didn't go over well with the dean of students. <laughs> really? She was like, what? You can't do this. You've got to go through the chain. I was like, yeah, but they told me to cover oh, it up. She's like, God, she's like, I can't. T-. She's like, no, you have to. You have to go through through the, the official clean chain. hands. So I was like, well, you're telling me that I'm covering up a rape. She's like, no, you're not covering up a rape. No one said to cover up a rape. Oh. I'm telling you to go through the official channels. Uh-huh. So I. Uh, I went back to the department and I went up to the chief of police and I made my argument to him. And he was like, no, no, we're going to do it this way. This is how the university wants us to do it. So then I went. So to, they're both blaming each other. At yeah, they're both point. blaming yeah. each other. So then I, then I, I folded the, the, the actual report up and I slid it under the, uh, under the, uh, under the uh, college president's door to his office. <laughs> that did not go over well <laughs> Jesus, either. Man. Um, I got, uh, I got reamed for doing that. Jesus. So after just coming into a brick wall, I went to those student papers mm-hmm. and I told them exactly what happened. I was one of Trump's famous anonymous sources. So obviously it was fake news. Of course. Of course, it was completely fake news at the time as well. Um, but they, that was quoted as an anonymous source. And I had did that. I gave them that report redacted mm-hmm. and a bunch of other reports redacted showing how the university had been chronically co- covering up sexual assaults on campus. Um, they didn't. There was. They were like. Did they asked me? Did you do this? I was like, no. Why would I? No, it wasn't yeah. me. team player. Team I was player going Bledsoe. through the channels. I, I, I went through the channels. You guys told me to go through the channels. Uh, shortly after that, I got called in to be questioned on whether or not that I was using my position as a campus police officer to sleep with students. Wow. What? I mean, I totally was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You but she was girls. a grad student. She was like twenty eight, and I was thirty one. It was not oh. creepy. Did- and I assume she didn't sleep with you Not because, because I was a you were cop. <laughs> no, I was in her class. So, you, oh, okay. So you dated someone, that a fellow student, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And another accusation was that I had uh, helped people cover up uh, keg parties and things like that. Again, absolutely true. <laughs> Uh, because I'm not going to bust somebody for being a college student. I'm yeah. going to tell them, look, don't be stupid. Don't, don't die. Don't die, you know. Yeah. Call me. If somebody gets too drunk, I'll make sure they get home. Yeah, and yeah. also that's a shitty beer. Drink something nice. <laughs> exactly. Stop drinking Keystone Light. Yeah. Just don't What the do fuck that. is wrong with you, dude? I'll, here's five bucks. <laughs> yeah, go. let me go to the store and buy you a real beer. Yeah, go get some Negronis. Uh, yeah, yeah, they were they were actively trying to, to get me out. Wow. And because I had actually gotten promoted to a management position, I was a sergeant by that time, mm-hmm. I didn't have union protection. And uh. they, they were pretty clear that they were going to run me out. So I resigned uh, from that department. And the thing was, is I was going to school for free and uh, ended up it. having to drop out of school because it was really hard for me to get funding to continue to go to which is you. Oops. Kentucky. Fine university. Fine university. Great. Oh, old GK. Old GKU. Go fighting. 
it's rather expensive to go there. Yeah. So. Dollars. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So that going to that university would be rather expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, that's fucking batshit. Uh, that's crazy. and that hasn't changed. I mean, there's a reason why why uh, I can't remember her name, but she carried her, her mattress around Columbia campus yeah. for, for you know, oh. an entire semester. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's that's how it works. Because well, you don't want your daughter to go to a school where she might get raped. Well, and the the thing is is the idea of trying to handle it through the university makes so much sense, especially if you're a young person and you you don't want to have your name in the papers and have this no. super drawn out thing that makes one terrible night drawn out for years and years, years and years. Your years university years. should exactly. protect you. I mean, um, this girl ended up going public with her story. Mm-hmm. She she uh, worked with Take Back the Night and a lot of other campus organizations mm-hmm. that, uh, and I, after I left, I would go on stage and, and after after her and I would tell my side of the story. Oh wow! Yeah, that that was really popular. <laughs> <laughs> but that must have been uh, at least somewhat was, gratifying for you. It to was gratifying. To... It was gratification and a little bit of vengeance. Yeah. I mean, because by that time I was a store. I was a student. Um. So, I mean, there's there's way too much to to yeah. wrap up here. I mean, but... you you came to New York after that. Yeah, yeah. that's what I moved okay, to New York so... with friends that I went from college. Um. But but let me just sort of generally speaking ask you um and obviously campus policing and politics is slightly different from just the culture of policing that we hear about on the news every night but um with the escalating controversies that we're we're seeing with policing and how police deal with communities and and racism and just the culture what do you think it would take for the culture of policing to change going forward the biggest problem is that we've turned civilian police departments into paramilitaries. Mm. They have a military mindset. They recruit almost exclusively from the military these days. Oh wow! And that, that's a double-edged sword because you get professional people, but at the same time, if you take guys from the military and you put them into a, into a paramilitary organization, they don't look at themselves as public servants. They look at themselves as warriors, mm-hmm. as, you know, it's us against them. Mm-hmm. And unfortunately, we, as the civilian population, are them. Are them. Yeah. Um, you want to change police, policing entirely, you go back to the idea that it's a public servants, that you work for the public, not Patrolmen, classic sort. Yeah. Guy on the street, walking down the street, uh, they, you, you teach them that their, their first job is to serve the public, not to police them. Yeah. You know, if that means helping an old lady across the street, you do that. Or, you know, holding a door or carry, help someone kind of carry their trash out. Know the people that you work with. And for God's sakes, get more women and minorities on the force because you cannot. It's a boys club. You <laughs> cannot ever fix anything if the entire yeah. structure around you Same. is a bunch of swinging dicks. Yeah. yeah. What uh, what's like what's starting pay like for a cop, though? Like, is that a disincentive? Yeah. It's like 18, 20, 30? Depends on where you are. And New York City is actually, I think, in the 40 or 50 range. Okay, good. Yeah, so it's, uh, but, uh, you know, there are places out in the burbs that it's 65, 70,000. Well, I'd seen year, some ads on the subway way back when that said starting pay is 18,000. I was like, who's who's going to take that Yeah, job? that's academy pay. So Oh, okay, yeah. maybe that's all that yeah, is. Yeah, that's, okay. that's what you make while you're in training. Oh, that's, and, and, and they're feeding you in housing. There's yeah. also uh, this thing called unlimited overtime. So I, I know that guys were making $100,000, $120,000 a year, not being wow. really high up there just by working, you know, overtime shifts. Yeah, my wow. stepdad was a fireman, and he, uh, he they had a lot of extra jobs this the town or the city would farm out, and he'd wind up, you know, three in the morning, a construction job's going, they need a guy to, like, move the traffic to the side. He'd just take that job as yeah. double, gold, double gold in overtime. Mm-hmm. It's like he was able to, you know, provide a lot because yeah. of that, so... Um, 
Um, well, Dave, uh, thank you so much for thank this. Um, yeah, oh. la- la- well, really quickly, just oh, last yeah. thing. Uh, you know, we know uh, Dave. We know you through our uh, through our friend Gwen. Mm-hmm. Who we uh, and we started meeting you. I think it was it at shows or Thanksgiving. Uh, I went to some shows early on, but then the first time we really got to meet each other was was the magnificent Thanksgiving. Yeah, yeah. and so we've we've seen you at a bunch of Thanksgivings, and we didn't really know any of this about you. Uh, you know, we'd got yeah, I knew I knew cursorily that you'd been in the military, yeah. and that was about, and that you get in uh, fights with your uh, conservative friends on Facebook. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's because I don't get drunk and morose at your parties. These are the kind of stories you don't tell <laughs> at a really great party with people you yeah. don't know well. This is the kind of thing that you're having a, you're having a bad night, and you're with your friends going. I need to talk about the thing. Oh, God, not the thing again. You said you wouldn't <laughs> talk about it. Uh, but the point is, you know, uh, you can know a person for years uh, socially or even closely and still not know a lot about them. Yeah. Uh, so now that we, you know, we know a lot about you or at least some of some more of you, um, uh, it, like if you could wear a sign around your neck, top lining who you are when you meet people, what do you think it would say? Photographer. Uh, photographer, podcaster, yeah, and just leave it in the present. Yeah, just leave it in the present. Yeah, I, I, I no longer consider myself a cop in, mm-hmm. in any way, shape, form, or fashion. I've been, I've not been a cop longer than I was a cop. Now, gotcha. That makes sense. All right, that's fair. Um, thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank this you, Dave. Has, uh, thank you. Been eye-opening. Yeah. Um, and so we're going to end as we often do with our secular prayer, Dave. If you will join us, absolutely. Your uh, parts are underlined, mm-hmm. and I will begin. You always begin. Our fellow humans who art here and now. Hallowed be thy consciousness. Thy kingdom floats. In a universe so vast it's like totally bananas, man. Therefore, be kind to each other. And don't eat so much bread. Ask forgiveness of your trespasses. And forgive those who trespass against you. Because all of us can be really fucking annoying. For thou art the mind inside thine stupid human suit. The only one of its kind. We are thus also. And that must simply be enough. Amen. Amen. All right, that's stupid human suits. Thanks so much, Dave Bledsoe. Thank you, guys. It's been great. Yeah, check him out at at the hell underscore podcast. Thanks. Have a good week, guys. For more shows like the one you just listened to, go to cavecomedyradio.com. dot